Okay, this is where we are. We're looking at the uh, brachial artery coming down. Go ahead, go ahead. We looked at the axillary artery here. Now the axillary artery will go down about as far as the bottom edge of the teres major muscle. We'll use that as an anatomical landmark. And at that point, that same artery will now change its name. It'll now become the brachial artery. And so we're going to use the brachial artery to travel down the brachial region, which is the arm region. We'll take the brachial artery uh, to about the level of the number of different um, landmarks you can use. Some use the radial tuberosity as a spot. Some use uh, the neck of the radius. At that spot, then, the brachial artery will divide into its two terminal branches, a radial artery and an ulnar artery, and we'll track those as they go down the forearm. Radial artery, obviously, on the radial side or lateral side, and the ulnar artery was going to track down the, the medial side. We're going to give off one large branch off of the brachial. It's called the deep brachial artery. The deep brachial artery will come off and go behind the humerus. It will use that spiral groove or radial groove on the back side of the humerus as its pathway same groove that will be used by the radial nerve to track back behind the, the humerus. And so we're going to get the muscles on the back side of the, um, of the humerus, the particular, the, tri the, uh, tri tri the uh, tricep muscle group will, be in, will pick up its uh, arterial supply from branches coming off that deep brachial artery tracking back behind, coming back this way. And here's the brachial artery traveling this way, and then we've got it about maybe neck of the radius. Some use the old radial tuberosity. Some even have a, uh, a, a landmark. If you draw a line that joins the two epicondyles together, maybe about an inch below that is approximately where the brachial artery will split into its radial and ulnar. And then the split, the ulnar is going to be the larger of the two because the ulnar is going to end up with a lot more responsibility in the forearm than the radial will. We'll look at that when we get down that far. Okay? Then... That's our next thing we're going to do. That's a look at the brachial artery as it tracks down. Then we're going to take a look at some of the nerves. We're tracking behind the uh, humerus. We'll track the radial nerve. The radial nerve will come out over here, over on the lateral side around the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. It's going to travel between the muscle called the brachioradialis muscle. We haven't done it yet, but we'll get to it today. Brachioradialis muscle and the brachialis muscle is uh, the, the tracking of the radial nerve. You notice they all the time in here, they're going to make that radial nerve a little bit uh, darker because it's going to be coming from the posterior cord. Now that's the way they designate the difference between the uh, medial cord, lateral cord, and posterior cord. They kind of darken up the nerve supply from the posterior. So here's our radial nerve coming down this way. And I think as I mentioned before, uh, it's not in the notes, but you might come across it depending upon who you read. That brachialis muscle might pick up some of its lateral innervation from the radial nerve as the radial nerve tracks down this way between the brachialis and the brachioradialis. Then uh, what do we do with the radial nerve? We, track. we take the radial nerve uh, be around the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. We'll follow it there. There's the radial nerve going back behind the humerus using that spiral groove or radial groove. That same pathway will be taken by the deep brachial artery. They'll both go behind the humerus this way. We'll take the radial nerve here. We've got it traveling between the brachialis and the brachioradialis. This is the brachioradialis muscle here, which we'll take a look at. At that point, then, the radial nerve will split into two parts, a, a deep and a superficial part. It divides. 
and we'll track and take a look at what happens with the radial nerve here. You see, here's the deep portion of the radial nerve coming this way, and the superficial portion of the radial nerve will travel all the way down to the back of the hand underneath the cover of the brachioradialis muscle. So we can, uh, and it's a cutaneous nerve, so we can, in essence, leave the, um, the superficial branch off the radial until we get down to the back of the hand and take a look at the cutaneous distribution on the back. But what we're going to do is take the radial nerve as it comes back or behind the humerus here. We'll use that radial nerve to supply the three heads of the tricep muscle, long lateral and medial. We'll use that nerve to supply the anconius muscle, a little small muscle from the lateral epicondyle that came over and attached onto the ulna, which was almost like a small little extension of the tricep muscle. It too will be innervated through the radial nerve. And then the radial nerve is going to do is split into superficial and deep, and we'll follow the design then of the deep one, because as I mentioned, the superficial one doesn't do anything until we get down to the back of the hand, and then it becomes, a, we'll, we'll look at it for its cutaneous distribution down there. Um, okay. Now some of the other things that are mentioned in here we will we'll pick up as we look at the different muscles and we'll come back and be able to, to, to talk about it. It makes more sense probably to talk about it as we look at the muscles and look at the um, pathway and the design of the nerve as it is associated with them. Okay. Here's a look at the same thing. We're going to pick up the radial nerve coming around the lateral epicondyle. We'll split it into superficial and deep, and then deep one here will travel. It actually goes between the two uh, heads of, this, of the supinator muscle. And then the, the continuation of the deep down the back of the forearm here forms a nerve called the posterior interosseous. Where are we? Here. The posterior interosseous is no more than the continuation of the deep radial. And then posterior interosseous is going to innervate all our extensor muscles found on the back surface of the forearm. And we'll track that and take a look at, it, at, at its design there. Well, all right. So we'll, we'll come back here and take a look at this in, in a little bit more detail, this area called the cubital fossa. We'll pick it up when we start to look at some of those, um, some of the muscles. All right, so we also then have a look maybe at the um, musculocutaneous nerve. This is kind of a review of what we did before. Musculocutaneous nerve will be a, um, one of the two terminal components off that lateral cord. We're going to use the musculocutaneous nerve to supply the coracobrachialis muscle. It'll supply the biceps brachii muscle. It'll supply the brachialis muscle. And as I mentioned, you might get a little bit of the brachialis being supplied by the, the lateral part of it, being supplied by the radial, depends on the chart that you look at. And then we'll take the um, musculocutaneous nerve and it'll serve as a lateral nerve for the, for, for the forearm. So lateral cutaneous nerve of the forearm is bringing up sensory information this way through the muscular cutaneous nerve. So the lateral part of your forearm, the skin would be then served by that component of the muscular cutaneous. And you can see it coming this way. Okay. It would be antibrachial, but it's on the lateral side. Remember, if we looked at the, uh, when we look at the brachial plexus, came off the medial cord that was the medial antibrachial cutaneous. That's on the other side of the forearm, right? So we're, we're on the lateral side, but yeah, you could call it antibrachial, yeah, because it is forearm. And, yep. Okay, so that's a look at the muscular cutaneous. The ulnar, we might as well leave this guy up here. The ulnar nerve travels on the lateral side of the brachial artery, comes this way. 
the ulnar nerve will go behind the medial epicondyle, becomes very superficial there, pretty susceptible to damage if you bang the inside of your elbow joint. Ulnar nerve has no responsibility in the arm, in the, um, the brachial region, in the arm region here. We'll put it around the medial epicondyle, and then we'll see what it does in the forearm. We'll track it down that way, but it has no responsibility up here in the, in the arm region. And here's the median nerve, which was the nerve that was derived from a, a, a branch coming off the, later, the uh, lateral cord, branch coming off the medial cord, came together, formed the median nerve. We pick up the median nerve here, and you notice it is on the lateral side of the brachial artery. But then by the time we get, it, we get that guy down to the level of the cubital fossa, which is the front of your elbow joint, you notice the median nerve is now on the other side of the brachial artery. It's now on the medial side. Here's the brachial artery coming down here, and we had it then splitting into a radial and an ulnar. We have the median nerve here on the, on the medial side, but you'll notice up back up here, the median nerve started on the lateral side of the brachial artery, so it changes its uh, positioning. Median nerve doesn't do anything in the arm region, and once again, when we get down to the forearm, we'll be able to pick up the responsibility of the median nerve once we track in the forearm region. So there's a look at the uh, des design of the few of the other nerves, the more the terminal nerves off the brachial plexus and, and where they're traveling. All right. And back up here, if we had this, that would be the brachiocephalic artery, common carotid artery here, subclavian going underneath the clavicle. On the other side, it would be the axillary to maybe about here, where the, pector, where the uh, teres major muscle would come across. And then the continuation would be the brachial till we get to about the neck of the radius and split it into radial and ulnar down at the, uh, below the level of the elbow joint. Okay. So that's a look at the kind of the overview of the design of those nerves and where we're tracking them. This area of the front of the elbow joint is called the cubital fossa. It has boundaries. They all have boundaries. We'll go across this way and join the two epicondyles together from here to here. That gives us our top boundary to this space. Take a muscle called the pronator teres muscle coming from the medial epicondyle. It comes down and attaches itself onto the radius. We'll use the lateral boundary of that muscle as our medial boundary to the cubital fossa. This is a triangular shaped space in the front of your elbow. And so we'll use the lateral side here of the pronator teres muscle as, one, as our medial boundary coming this way. And then we'll use the medial side of the brachioradialis muscle. We'll use that as our lateral boundary. And so we get this triangular shaped space um, in the front of the elbow joint. That's called the cubital fossa. And you see it's a fairly busy space. A number of things are going to pass through and across the elbow joint there. The one thing that I should mention, and I don't think I did put it in the book, but, we sh but you should make a note of it. You'll notice that if we take the skin off of this region, then right underneath the skin in this region, we're going to end up with those superficial veins that we looked at before. Remember, we picked up from the uh, lateral side of that dorsal venous network on the back of your hand. We picked up the cephalic vein traveling up, and here it is in that cubital fossa region. And over on the medial side, we picked up the basilic vein traveling up. And in this cubital fossa region, those two veins are going to be linked together by a vein called the median cubital vein. Median cubital vein is a subcutaneous vein that links together the cephalic vein and the basilic vein. This is a vein that they tend to uh, tap into if they want to take a blood sample or if you want to donate blood or those types of things. And I didn't put it in because uh, I don't know why I didn't put it in. But that's what you would find in this region, in that cubital phosphorus. Once you take the skin off, you have to, that's our next thing. 
And then we'll just keep tracking the cephalic vein. We tracked that all the way up to the very top. Before the axillary vein went underneath the, the uh, clavicle, we had the cephalic vein dump in. And we tracked the basilic vein up maybe about halfway uh, above the between elbow and shoulder. We had it then go underneath the biceps brachii head deep and hook up with the couple of accompanying veins that accompanied the brachial artery, the vena comitant of the brachial artery. And when those two things merged together, they virtually formed then the axillary vein, and we tracked that up. But this is our, our superficial venous drainage, and this is what you'll find on this region here on the cubital fossa area. And we should make a notation that median cubital vein is a vein in most people that attaches, links up the cephalic vein on the lateral side with the basilic vein coming up on the medial side. All right, looking at it that way. Now you notice there is a floor to the cubital, whoops, cubital fossa. It's made up of a muscle, partly made up of a muscle called the supinator muscle, which is this muscle. You can see it, the supinator here. And if you follow that uh, brachialis muscle, that deep one underneath the biceps, it as well would help to make up part of the floor to this space called the cubital fossa. So here's one look at the supinator muscle, this one. Supinator will be obviously responsible for supinating the, the forearm. You pronate by rotating, rotating the radius over this way. You supinate by rotating the radius back in the opposite direction. That's the process of supinating. We mentioned that the biceps brachii uh, tendon was a fairly important, powerful supinator. And then we also have the supinator muscle, which is going to do the same thing for us. Okay. Uh, we'll keep going. A decent view of the supinator does come in two parts. One portion of the supinator will come from the lateral epicondyle, and one portion of the supinator is coming from the side shaft of the ulna. So it's got two heads to it. And you notice if we go back and take a look at that blow up of the, of the ulna, you notice that we have this spot here on the ulna for the attachment of the supinator. The other head will come from the lateral epicondyle. And it, so it has two heads to it. And then what we're going to do is take that muscle and wrap it around and have it attach just a little bit lateral to that anterior oblique line on the front of the, of the uh, radius. There is a fairly distinct ridge on the front of the radius that goes diagonally across. It's called the anterior oblique line. You can pick up the anterior oblique line coming across this way. So what we're going to do is take the supinator, we're going to wrap it around the radius this way and come over here and attach it onto the radius along that spot there. So that would be, give you a kind of a landmark of where you're going to attach the supinator muscle. It'll attach to along that anterior oblique line of the radius. And there it is there coming down on the front side attaching along there. It's got two heads to it, one from the lateral epicondyle and one from the shaft of the ulna. And that becomes fairly important in that when we take a look at uh, the radial nerve, the radial nerve we had coming around this way, we split the radial nerve into superficial and deep. We're going to take then the deep portion of the radial nerve and innervate the supinator muscle with it. That's a split on the radial, we'll do that. And then that deep radial nerve will now, go back the other way, where did I have it here somewhere, where did I have it? Yeah, you'll notice that in the deep radial nerve, we'll use the two heads of the supinator muscle to go behind the back of the forearm, the posterior surface. And then once it splits those, or goes between those two heads and travels down the back of the forearm, we now change its name to the posterior interosseous nerve. It's the same nerve. 
you might even find some uh, sources that won't even call it deep radial. They'll call it the posterior osseous nerve right away. But I've uh, used the split between the radial splitting between deep and superficial. We put the deep one through the two between the two heads of the supinator and we track it down the back of the forearm as the posterior interosseous. Comes back down this way. And here's the deep branch here on the split supplying the supinator muscle. Here's the attachment of the supinator along that ridge, along the, um, the uh, anterior oblique line here. Obviously, it's responsible for supinating, for rolling the radius back in the opposite direction. So that would be then the supinator. Innervated by the deep radial nerve. So it's going to be innervated by the radial nerve after it is split into superficial and deep. Brachioradialis muscle, which we've talked about a little bit because it helped to form the boundary to that uh, triangular space, will come from the lateral supracondylar ridge. Now, if you look at the, both the medial and lateral sides of the humerus here, we'll have a medial and lateral epicondyles. And then they have a fairly distinct sharp edge to them on either side. So way up here from the fairly high up on the lateral supracondylar ridge will be the beginning of the brachioradialis muscle. It will come down and attach onto the styloid process of the radius. So it has nothing to do with wrist movement. It doesn't cross the wrist. And the brachioradialis muscle will be innervated by the radial nerve before it splits. And I think in the notes it says deep. Well, you can stroke out, stroke out deep. It just says radial. Just be radial. There are going to be a, a couple of muscles which are going to be done by the radial nerve before it has split into its superficial and deep. And the brachioradialis muscle is one of those that we're going to look at. And we've used it as a boundary for the space, the cubital fossa. So we're going to cross the elbow joint. We're going to go to the styloid process of the radius, so we're not going to cross the wrist. We're going to be innervated by the radial nerve. And this muscle will pick up most of its responsibility when you want to flex your elbow. When your forearm is in either what do you call a semi-supinated or semi-pronated position in this position. This is where that muscle has its best advantage to be able to help in the process of flexing your elbow joint. That would be the brachioradialis muscle. Okay from the lateral supracondylar ridge to the styloid process. And as I mentioned, we used it as a boundary uh, to that cubital fossa region. And it's an elbow flexor when the, when the elbow is mainly in the semi-pronated or semi-supinated position halfway in between here and here would be the spot where you'd use the brachioradialis muscle. Okay. Uh, and then the next one, because when we take a snapshot of this region, this muscle uh, is, is, a, is there. We're going to look at the extensor carpi radialis longus muscles. Now we're going to end up with a whole series of muscles that are going to travel down the back of the forearm. But because we're in this region and that muscle shows itself, we need to be able then to explain it at this time. It doesn't really fit if you wanted to take a look at all the wrist extenders, but we need to use it now because we can see it now in the a view of the cubital fossa region. It's the extensor carpi radialis longus. comes from a little bit lower down on the supracondylar ridge on the lateral side. The muscle will now come down and it'll go underneath a band of connective tissue on the back of your hand, the extensor retinaculum. And when we get down to the hand, we will talk more about the retinaculum on the back side and the retinaculum on the front side. So don't worry about that at the moment. It's going to come down and attach itself to the base of the second uh, metacarpal, metacarpal of your index finger, is where that muscle will end up. It will go underneath the retinaculum there. 
Uh, it does cross a little bit behind the elbow joint, so it would assist slightly in the movement of extending the elbow, but its major responsibility will be to cross behind the wrist joint, so it's an extender of the wrist. And because it is on the uh, lateral side, it's on the thumb side, it will help in abducting the wrist, moving the wrist outward from the midline. So it's going to give you abducting, taking it away from the midline, and it's going to be an extender. It's going to come down and attach itself uh, to the base of the second metacarpal, metacarpal of your, of your index finger on the back side. That would be the extensor carpi radialis longus. It's going to be integrated once again by the radial nerve before the radial nerve is split into its superficial and deep branches. Okay? And as I mentioned, it, kinda, it looks like it's kind of out of sequence, but when you take a look at this region, that muscle pokes up, and so we have to discuss it at that point. All right. Then the other one in the package is the pronator teres muscle. And we used the lateral boundary of the pronator teres. The lateral margin of it here gave us the medial boundary to that triangular space. Pronator teres muscle will come from the medial epicondyle. We're going to use the medial epicondyle as a fairly common origin for the muscles that travel down the front of your forearm. It's the common uh, flexor uh, origin. We'll take the, the, now the muscle has actually, and it's fairly important, the muscle has two parts to it. It's kind of hard to see here. But we have the portion for the pronator teres muscle coming from the medial epicondyle. Then we skip across a little bit and have part of that muscle originating from the coronoid process. Coronoid process was the sharp ridge of the trochlear notch, anterior ridge of the trochlear notch. So we are, going, we are going to have two heads to this muscle, one coming from the medial epicondyle, one coming from the coronoid process here. It skips over and has a small little gap. And we're going to use that gap in order then to track the median nerve down the, the forearm. So it will be able then to go between the two heads of the, of the pronator teres muscle. Then the muscle will come across and attach onto the radius. Now, if you look at the radius, I guess we can go back. I do have a radius picture here. If you look at the radius, you'll notice the well, it's not so good. radius is not a straight bone. It's got a little bit of a bend to it, a bit of a curve. And usually described as where the bend or the curve is at its most, about here, will be approximately where the pronator teres muscle will pick up its attachment, over here on the lateral side. Some might even describe it coming in and using this um, anterior oblique line as its, as its attachment. But right about here, where, the bend, where there's a, the biggest bend in the muscle, in the, in the bone rather, is where we're going to have the attachment for the pronator teres. So it's going to come across that way. Pronator teres will be innervated by the median nerve. The median nerve will take care of that one. You can see it does cross the elbow joint, so it would be an elbow flexor, not its most important responsibility it will be a pronator. It helps to take the radius and roll it back this way over the, over the ulna. It's a pronator. And we're going to end up with two pronators, one here of the pronator teres and one down at the wrist, uh, and both responsible for the act of pronating, innervated by the median nerve. That would be then the job of the pronator teres muscle. And we use that as a boundary for our space. Um, then, um, and I mentioned when we get down to the hand, we're going to, we'll talk about this a little bit in far more detail, but we're looking at, when we look at the, the tendons passing, we'll look at this thing called a retinaculum. Now, we're on the palmer side where there is a, 
a uh, flexor at neck, and then because the muscles that travel across are going to be there to help flex the wrist and flex the fingers. And this flexor retinaculum will come from the two lateral carpal bones and attach over here to the two medial carpal bones, pisiform and hamate on this side, and the scaphoid and the trapezium over here. And a majority of the tendons that are going to pass across the wrist into the hand will go underneath the flexor retinaculum in that fashion. And come back to that in a second. Now, when you take a look at the carpal bones, here's a series of eight bones. Uh, the easiest way to remember them and put them in order is two rows of four. You'll end up with a proximal row and a distal row. And there is, in fact, a, a space or a joint between the proximal and the distal row. It's called the mid-carpal or transverse carpal joint. We'll use it in uh, analyzing some of the movements of the wrist. Carpal bones here would then be from the thumb side and traveling over to the little finger side, so that would be from lateral to medial. We have the scaphoid next to it, the lunate, the triangular or triquetrum, triangular is fine, and the pisiform bone sitting on top of the triquetrum or triangular. In fact, those two bones uh, form a little synovial joint as the pisiform bone sits on top of the triangular bone. So those would be the four bones in the proximal row going from lateral thumb side to little finger or lateral to medial, scaphoid, lunate, triangular, pisiform. And then if you look at the distal row, once again, going from the thumb side over to the little finger side, trapezium, um for thumb, trapezium, trapezoid, capitate in the middle, and hamate. The hamate's the one with a fairly distinct hook to it. Trapezium, trapezoid, capitate, hamate would be then the four bones located in the distal row uh, of carpal bones. Okay. And as we mentioned, then traveling or attaching from the trapezium and scaphoid on one side and over then to the hamate bone and the pisiform bone over the other side would be that band of connective tissue, the flexor retinaculum. Okay. And there's the, the retinaculum there. The idea of this is, as I mentioned, all but one of the tendons that are going to pass the wrist and go into the hand are all going to go underneath the retinaculum. So that retinaculum is going to act as a part of that carpal tunnel. And if you take a look at the, the design of the carpal bones in the hand, they're not flat, but rather they're concave forward, so that if you put a connective tissue piece across this way here, the retinaculum, then you would create this tunnel where a number of things have to pass in order to get into the hand. So the design and the orientation of the carpal bones along with the retinaculum coming across is going to give you that confined passageway for arteries, veins, nerves, and tendons to pass. Here's another look at the same thing, looking at that flexor retinaculum. And another look, but we'll come back to that in a second once we get a little further. All right, so now we're going to take a look at the muscles that travel down the front of the um, front of the forearm. We have already looked at the pronator teres. Came from the medial epicondyle, picked up a little bit of attachment from the coronoid process, came down and attached onto the radius, was going to be innervated by the median nerve. Major responsibility would be for pronating the forearm, rolling the radius over that way. Next one in line as we go from medial to lateral as we track across, and this is, these are all going to be at, a, at one level. They're all going to be at the most superficial level that we've got. We take the skin off, and now we're looking at these muscles at, that, at the very top level. 
Next one over would then be the flexor carpi radialis. Flexor carpi radialis muscle will come from the medial epicondyle, which is our common flexor origin. It'll track down over on the uh, lateral side. Um, it will attach itself to the base of the second and third metacarpals. That'll be its attachment. It'll be innervated by the median nerve. Made trunk of the median nerve coming down will innervate the uh, flexor carpi radialis muscle. And you can see that if we take a close look at it, this, the muscle as it tracks across the wrist joint, you'll notice that the flexor carpi radialis muscle he, uh, tendon here is going to be almost confined in its own little um, tunnel. In fact, the retinaculum here kind of splits a little bit, and the tendon of the flexor carpi radialis sits in that little tunnel created by the split of the flexor retinaculum. So that's the flexor carpi radialis tendon traveling. Here's my retinaculum here. Scaphoid and trapezium, pisiform bone, hamate bone, giving the design of the retinaculum. The muscle does cross the wrist, the elbow joint, so it would assist slightly in flexing the elbow. It does cross the wrist joint, so it would be a wrist flexor. It is on the thumb side, so it's an abductor. It'll take the wrist and move it outward. So you get wrist abducting, moving the wrist out, and you'll get wrist flexing and the innervation for it will be through the um, median nerve. That's the flexor carpi radialis muscle tracking down that way. Then if we go one, if we go one uh, muscle over, we'll look at the um, palmaris longus muscle. Palmaris longus, once again, will still come from the medial epicondyle of the humerus. We're looking at a, the common flexor origin. We pick up the, the palmaris longus muscle coming this way now. That muscle does not travel underneath the retinaculum. It goes over top of the retinaculum and ends up attaching into a palmar aponeurosis, which is a fairly tough, thin tendon material in the palm of your hand. In two or three pages along, we'll talk about the aponeurosis in a little more detail. And here's the palmar aponeurosis for now. We'll just take a snapshot of it. It is uh, almost the, the uh, fascial extension of the flexor, uh, the flexor retinaculum. It's this triangular piece here and the tendon for the palmaris longus muscle will attach into the palmar aponeurosis. Muscle goes over top of the retinaculum, doesn't go underneath. Some people have it, some people don't. Sometimes it's not a very powerful muscle. Sometimes if they need to recruit uh, tissue in order to uh, make a new tendon, uh, make a new ligament rather, uh, somewhere, perhaps reconstruct a anterior cruciate ligament, then they would take this muscle out of one side and use the tendon as the tissue for reconstruction. It's not important. It's, uh, you can get along quite well without it. If you take it out of one side, and your other um, limb will not be strong, as noticeably stronger than the, other, the one that where it's missing. So it's a tissue that they use in order to recruit to help to make uh, mostly ligaments that need to be rebuilt. Some people have it, some people don't. That's the palmaris longus. It's going to go down the middle here. It does cross the elbow joint, so it will assist in elbow flexing. It does cross the wrist joint, so it will assist in wrist flexing. But as I mentioned, in, because of its size, it's not that, it's not that prominent uh, a muscle in the area. But it's still there in most people. That's the um, palmaris longus. Still be innervated by the median nerve. Then if we come over to the last one at this superficial level, we're looking at the flexor carpi ulnaris. It will pick up an origin from the medial epicondyle. It also picks up a little bit of attachment from the 
ulna here, and that's going to be critical because we now have to be able to get the ulnar nerve down the forearm, so it's going to use the split in that muscle as its pathway to get down. That's uh, the flexor carpi ulnaris. It's going to travel down the medial side this time. Flexor carpi ulnaris is going to go and attach itself. The tendon of it will attach itself to the pisiform bone. So that means the pisiform bone actually is a sesamoid bone, that it's a bone that is encased in the tendon of a muscle. And then by extension, we're going to be then be able to, by the pisohamate ligament, we'll be able then to get the power of this muscle kind of transferred over from the pisiform bone to the hamate bone. And by extension this way, the, the pisometacarpal ligament, we'll get that functioning of that muscle transferred over to the base of the fifth metacarpal, metacarpal of your little finger. But technically, the muscle is going to stop at the pisiform bone. But then by extension, we'll be from the pisiform bone to the base of the fifth metacarpal, we'll be able then to get the functioning of that muscle, allowing for crossing the elbow joint, not that important, crosses the wrist joint on the medial side, will give you flexing. And it is on the medial side, so it'll assist in adducting, moving the wrist in towards the midline. Anything that's on this surface or this surface, doesn't matter which one you're on, if you're on the medial side and cross the wrist, you'll assist in adducting. If you're on the lateral side and cross the wrist, you will be abducting. Doesn't matter whether you're flexors or extenders. If you're on this side, you're going to help to adduct if you cross the wrist. If you're on this side, you're going to help to abduct if you cross the wrist. Okay? So that's what we're going to do with the uh, flexor carpi ulnaris. This one's going to be innervated by the ulnar nerve. The ulnar nerve is going to do one and a half muscles in the forearm. This is one of the one and a half. So it's a, it, it goes against the uh, median nerve that we've used all along for the other muscles traveling that way. So there's our flexor carpi <coughs> ulnaris at that level coming down there. All right, so now what we do is we take that grouping of muscles, those four muscles on the front surface, we take them off, come down and look at the next level. At the next level, there's a muscle all by itself at this level, flexor digitorum superficialis muscle. That's all this one. So we're going to pick up an origin once again from the medial epicondyle, common flexor origin. We'll come down and skip over and pick up an attachment here on the radius. So we're going to end up with a bit of a gap in that, a top gap in that muscle coming around this way. That's the flexor digitorum superficialis. From the medial epicondyle, skipping over with a top boundary to it and attaching onto the radius here. So that top boundary is going to be significant. Because once again, we're going to use that to allow uh, the median nerve to travel deep down the forearm. So we're picking up a little bit of attachment. We pick up attachment from the medial epicondyle. Might pick up a little bit of attachment here from the edge of the ulna. But important is this top boundary to the muscle is free until we come over here and attach onto the radius. And that then gives us a pathway for the uh, arteries and nerves to travel down underneath the, the superficialis down the front of the forearm. So we're going to pick up an attachment here from the radius. You notice it's almost along that anterior oblique line again on the front surface of the radius coming this way. Muscle will now divide into four tendons, one for each of your four medial digits. 
index finger, middle finger, ring finger, little finger. It, those tendons will go underneath the flexor retinaculum. So they're going to be confined by the retinaculum. That means that when you contract that muscle, as an example, those tendons can't just bowstring out up like this. If they, if, when you contract the muscle and you didn't have a band of connective tissue across, then there'd be a tendency for the tendon just to pop up. And if the tendon popped up, you'd get no movement at the distal end. So by putting the retinaculum here and having these tendons go underneath, when you shorten the muscle here, it will then cause a, a sliding of the tendon at its attachment. Otherwise, it's just going to kind of pop up a little bit and you won't get as much movement at the distal end or the insertion for the muscle. We're going to go down to the uh, four fingers, not the thumb, but the other four fingers. And we're going to take the tendon and split it in half, split it in two ways, one on the medial side and one on the lateral side. And it'll go as far as the second phalanx of each of those four digits. We have to split this tendon in half because there's going to be one that's going to travel underneath it that has to get to the end of your fingers. And in order to get to the end of your fingers, we need to have a split in the tendon of the superficialis in order to allow the deep one to get to the end. Okay. So we do cross the elbow joint, so we'll do a little bit of elbow movement, but not, not, not significant. We do cross the wrist joint, so we're going to get wrist flexing. Uh, we cross the metacarpal phalangeal joint, big knuckle, so we'll get that to flex. And we cross the first interphalangeal joint of each of your four fingers, so we're going to get that one to flex. Doesn't go to the end, so it has nothing to do with the second interphalangeal joint. And there is no movement, basically, there is no movement between the carpals and the metacarpals of the four fingers. So we don't need to worry about movement describing there. So we're going to cross the wrist joint, we'll get, out, we'll get wrist flexing. We'll cross the metacarpal phalangeal joint, the big knuckle, we'll get that to flex and we'll cross the first interphalangeal joint, we'll get that to flex. Muscle will be innervated by the median nerve. Median nerve will be responsible for the contraction of the uh, flexor digitorum superficialis. Right. So that is one muscle all by itself at one level. We'll take that muscle off, remove it, we'll go down to the next level. Next level we end up with two muscles. This time we're not starting above the level of the elbow, we're starting below. We get then the flexor digitorum profundus, the deep flexor. A lot of pickup on the front surface of the ulna here, considerable surface pickup on the, on the ulna, and the interosseous membrane, that membrane that goes between the radius and the ulna, will be the origin for that muscle. Muscle will divide itself into four tendons, one for each of your four fingers. They will once again have to go underneath the flexor retinaculum it's deep to the superficialis muscle. It will then take us to the terminal phalanx of each of your four fingers. It has nothing to do with the elbow joint because it starts below the level of the elbow. It will assist us in flexing the wrist. It will then flex every one of the, dig uh, any, every one of the articulations we have uh, distal to that. So it's going to assist in that movement of the, between metacarpal and first phalanx, big knuckle of your hand. It will assist in flexing the first interphalangeal joint, next knuckle, and it's going to then be the muscle that will allow us to flex the second interphalangeal joint of your fingers, coming down this way. And you can see why then the tendon of the superficialis had to divide 
because there's a muscle that comes underneath it that has to go a little bit further and attach onto the distal phalanx of each of the uh, four fingers that way. That would be then the flexor digitorum profundus. Now, that part of the muscle that's going to generate the tendons that'll go to your little finger and your ring finger will be innervated in most people by the ulnar nerve. That part of the muscle that generates the tendons that go to your index finger and middle finger in most people will be innervated by the median nerve. So there's a split in the responsibility of the flexor digitorum profundus. The medial portion of the muscle that generates the tendon for the little finger and ring finger by the ulnar nerve, and the more, medial the more lateral portion of the muscle that generates the tendon for the middle finger and the index finger will be innervated by the median nerve. So that's where you get the ulnar nerve innervating in the forearm one and a half muscles. Innervates the flexor carpi ulnaris plus the medial half of the flexor digitorum profundus. Okay. And then the last muscle in this, uh, the other muscle at this level is the, the one directed directly to the thumb, flexor pollicis longus. Once again, we're going to use that um, to be just medial to the um, uh, anterior oblique line will be a part of the attachment for the pollicis longus. And then once again, we'll use the interosseous membrane in the middle. We'll take a tendon and we'll put it underneath the flexor retinaculum again. And then we'll take it all the way down to the end of your thumb, to the terminal phalanx of your thumb. That'll be the tendon for the flexor pollicis longus. That will be innervated by the median nerve, responsible for that one. You can see that that muscle will cross the wrist joint, so it'll assist in wrist flexing. It's most, most of its responsibility will be for movement of the thumb. It's going to be, it go down to the end of your thumb, so it'll give you flexing of the interphalangeal joint of your thumb. Your thumb only has one interphalangeal joint. And it will give you flexing of the metacarpophalangeal joint of your thumb, coming around this way, like that. And it'll also assist in flexing the carpal metacarpal joint of your thumb. That this, the carpal metacarpal joint of your thumb, as we'll see, is going to allow for a number of different, it's going to allow for th uh, four different movements. It's going to allow for flexing your thumb and extending your thumb, and it's going to allow for abducting your thumb and adducting your thumb. Those movements will occur at the carpal metacarpal joint of the thumb. It's different than the other four fingers, and when we take a look at joints later on, we'll come back and look at that very specifically, at those types of movements. Um, but we, we are able to move the thumb at the carpal metacarpal joint. It allows you then to move your thumb across your palm of your hand and grasp an object, which is important for us. It's a, it's a characteristic we don't have in our big toe. We can't move your big toe across the plantar surface of your foot. It doesn't have the same joint between, in the foot between the tarsal and the metatarsal. Okay. So we're going to get flexing of the interphalangeal joint. We'll get flexing of the metacarpal phalangeal joint. And we'll also get assisting in helping to flex the carpal metacarpal joint of the thumb. It's a saddle-shaped joint that allows for movement in two different directions, innervated by the median nerve. We take those two muscles off, the profundus and the, and the um, flexor pollicis longus, and then the deepest muscle down there is this four-sided one, the pronator quadratus. Four-sided, running from the radius to the ulna, or ulna to radius, doesn't really matter which way you call it. Still innervated by branches or bundles of the median nerve will be the responsibility of the pronator quadratus. And as you can figure out, it's a pronator. It's a little bit better pronator than the pronator teres in being able to roll the radius over the ulna that way. That will be our deepest muscle in the package. So we start on a more superficial level, 
pronator teres, flexor carpi radialis, palmaris longus, flexor carpi ulnaris. We take those muscles off. We have one under, underneath that, the flexor digitorum superficialis. We take that muscle off. We have two underneath that, flexor pollicis longus, flexor digitorum profundus. We take that, those muscles off, and we've got the last one, which is the pronator quadratus, which is this one here. Except for the medial half of the flexor digitorum profundus and the flexor carpi ulnaris, all the other muscles will be innervated by the median nerve. Medial half of the digitorum profundus and the flexor carpi ulnaris will be innervated by the ulnar nerve in most people. Uh, I think then I'll leave it at that. When we start, the, when we do the next class, we'll, we'll back up here and take a look at some of the things I've got that show the tendons as they pass in and around underneath the uh, retinaculum. Give you an idea of the, the design of it there.